you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Stop. Before you get married, you must listen to this podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. It is our passion to help LGBT people live fabulously and not fabulously broke. So please help us spread the message by liking, commenting, and sharing this podcast on iTunes so that we can get it into the hands of more people so that we can help more people. Today, we're excited to share with you a concept that we had only recently learned about. Today, we host Jennifer Ray from Harris Law Firm here in Denver, Colorado, and she shares with us the concept of marital agreements. Many of us have heard about prenuptial agreements, but there are also agreements that you can establish after marriage that can help protect you through your marriage and at the end of your marriage, whether that happens to be from divorce or through death. It is our passion to help you live the best life possible, and this concept can help you have one of the best marriages possible. So listen to this podcast. We want to thank Jennifer in advance for attending our show and helping us understand this, and let's get started. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Well, welcome Jenny Ray to Queer Money. We appreciate having you. Yes, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So for our listeners, one of the things that David and I love about what we do is that very often friends and colleagues say, you need to meet this person or you have to go to this business and talk to these people. And an old friend of mine from way back in my Charles Schwab days uh, suggested that David and I meet with the folks over at Harris Law Firm, which is a pretty prominent firm here in Colorado. And uh, we had the opportunity to meet with Jenny and talk about what she and her business are all about and what our business is all about. And it was very very inspiring and fun. And she um, she dropped a knowledge bomb when I was doing that conversation. <laughs> she made the comment about post-marital agreements, and we had no idea what that was. We had heard of prenuptial agreements and, of course, divorces, but we had no idea that there was something that you could do in between then to maybe make things a little, little bit more amicable. <laughs> so we, yeah, we, said, got, we got that little star going across the sky, the more you know, all of a sudden. <laughs> and we were like, oh, we need to know more about this. <laughs> so we said, Jenny, can you come on our talk show and tell us the LGBT community about um, all these different marital agreements? And so she she kindly said, yes. So welcome. We're, we're excited to have you. Yes, I'm excited to be here. You know, it's it's certainly lovely. I know that it was, uh, yes, we had a very uh, enlightening day. You all taught me a lot of things as well. So I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So Jenny is very prominent herself. She is, as well as being a partner at Howard's Law Firm here in Colorado, um, she was named Super Lawyer's Rising Star Five Years Running, which I just see her in kind of like a cape and a leotard outfit <laughs> being a super lawyer. <laughs> and then, I wish that came with it. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. And you would already have a Halloween costume every year. And then... Um, <laughs> She was nominated for Denver Business Journal's Top 40 Under 40 in 2016 and 2017. So our goal is to get her nominated and to be the winner for 2018. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're very kind. Absolutely. I'm running out of time, surely, <laughs> quickly. So um, post that intro, do you mind giving our listeners a little bit of a background on who you are and what your, what your experience is all about? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, as you mentioned, my name is Jenny. I, um, I'm originally from Tennessee. So, uh, you know, my apologies for the Southern accent here. You know, no, I've been out of state for almost 20 years now and I still can't shake it. So it's, it's there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, I'm originally, like I said, from Tennessee, but out of college, I moved to 
San Francisco for a number of years and moved to uh, the East Coast, went to law school in Vermont and moved down to the New Jersey, New York area for a couple of years. And then my husband and I moved to Colorado. So he and I are very happy to uh, be here. And we've been here now for 10 years. So uh, love that everything that Colorado is all about. So you're a Colorado now. You've been yeah, converted. no kidding, right? <laughs> yeah. I think that automatically waves me in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and don't mind the Southern accent. I've read studies that sh- that say that people with Southern accents tend to be trusted more. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty good for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so why I'm excited about this conversation today is that you know, many of us in the LGBT community uh, fought for marriage equality, for same-sex marriage. And then after the Supreme Court legalized that across the country, many of us went out and got married pretty rapidly. And then it was only after we got married that many of us realized, oh, there's all sorts of responsibilities and repercussions to getting married. It's not just, you know, a fabulous wedding day and, and riding off into the sunset. There are Well it's that too, but <laughs> <laughs> but so that's why we're excited to have Jenny on our, our show today. So in your experience and your with your legal background, what is your advice for anybody, including the LGBT community, to consider before diving into a marriage, before saying I do? You know, I think that my, uh, the piece of advice I always give is that, you know, certainly sit down and have a conversation, you know, make sure that certainly, and let's hope that anyone is getting, that's getting married, they're having those conversations, but, you know, certainly want to, you want to make sure that you're both on the same page and moving forward. And, um, because unfortunately all relationships will come to an end either through (laughs) as, as, morbid as that sounds actually now that I say it out loud <laughs> but um you know I'll I'll be it through divorce or death right and so you want to make sure that you're protected that um any children from relationship this relationship from prior relationships what have you that you're protected and you know it's nice as we've seen you you know in in our practice um you know certainly divorces can get very ugly and bitter and you know you can attempt to minimize that and through kind of an instrument called a marital agreement or a premarital agreement. And, you know, I strongly recommend parties that are thinking about getting married, that they strongly consider one just because you can dictate. I mean, in my opinion, I like to be able to control things. (laughs) And I like to be able to have that kind of uh, certainty. And through a marital agreement or a premarital agreement, you certainly can attempt to control that and dictate what might happen in the future at the end of the relationship. Gotcha. So we're kindred spirits in the fact that I like to control things too. (laughs) (laughs) You bring up a a good point here, uh, Jennifer, that especially for so many in our community, but I think also in the population in general, there's so much that has happened in our lives prior to entering into the marriage agreement with someone else. So there are so many different things that may have happened that they may be in the back of our minds, but they may play a very controlling or be a large factor in how our marriage agreement or how our marriage goes forward. Or like you said, when we cross that bridge of when the relationship is ending, how do we determine what happens with all those decisions that we've made in the past? And I can't imagine, but the primary reason for this is so that everyone is happy 
when that relationship does end. You know, that the, that like you said, children are taken care of or a spouse is taken care of. Maybe uh, family members are taken care of during certain circumstances. And it all is for our benefit, really. That's right. It seems like it's such a burden to think of at the very beginning because we're, you know, in love and happy about everything, but you still want a happy ever after, no matter what. <laughs> That's exactly right. And you're absolutely right in thinking of a premarital agreement. And sometimes, I mean, unfortunately, they can have that kind of negative connotation that if a person is requesting a person to enter into one, it's like, oh, well, they must not think that this is going to last, so to speak. But that's, in my opinion, that's not it at all. Um, it's just being cognizant of that this relationship will ultimately end and let's try to figure out what's going to happen at that time. (laughs) So make me clear if you could, please. So you have a prenuptial agreement, then there's a marital agreement or a postnuptial agreement. What are the differences between the two? Is it just when you come to that agreement or are there different factors? So, so recently, Colorado law um, has changed. And so we follow what's called the Uniform Premarital and Marital Act here in Colorado. And basically, a premarital agreement, the technical legal definition is, means an agreement between individuals who intend to marry, which affirms, modifies, or waives a marital right or obligation during the marriage or at a legal separation, marital dissolution, or death of one of the spouses or the occurrence or non-occurrence of some other event. So that's a premarital agreement. That's how it's defined statutorily. And basically a marital agreement is the same thing, except for that it happens after the marriage. So a person can enter into and, you know, basically dictate this is how we're going to treat property and this is how we're going to treat maintenance or the same thing as alimony before marriage happens or after the marriage has occurred. So long as both parties are on the same page and agree to it. And does one carry more, I guess, weight than another? So is there a reason to want to do it prior to marriage or is it does it not necessarily matter other than that gap of time when there is no agreement? Um, I'm not certain if one carries more weight than the other. In my experience, I would think necessarily not, but it's you know, certainly at the beginning of the marriage, before the marriage has occurred, you know, you're basically addressing everything from that start point of date of marriage, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And after the marriage has occurred, you know, whether any property has been commingled or any interests have been, you know, certainly mixed with one another, you know, it it could um, basically it's not necessarily create problems per se, but you've might've already entered into some kind of gray area, unless you address it within the marital agreement. Mm -hmm. Right. And because from a divorce standpoint, if you look at this kind of on the opposite end is that anything acquired during a marriage, as far as property is concerned, can be considered marital property and subject to equitable division Unless there's a few different instances, such as, you know, it was acquired before the marriage and it was never commingled and kind of maintained that separate property status, or it was received as a result of a bequest or an inheritance um, or a gift. And also, if it's been 
basically kind of excluded as marital property as a form of a valid agreement. So that's where your kind of marital agreements kind of come in. Mm-hmm. So Okay. And then I didn't ask you this before, but I, I would assume then that a prenuptial or a postnuptial agreement would last up until obviously the divorce or the um, till one of the partners passes away. And at that point, the trust and estates would take over? That's correct. I mean, basically, you're looking at if whether or not that premarital or marital agreement would have any impact on that, basically, kind of any any wills or any other kind of estate planning tools. And so, you know, a person certainly has to look to that. And, and you're absolutely right. There's this kind of world that um, of family law and estate planning that kind of coincides at several points in a person's <laughs> life, right? So that's certainly a time where you would want to talk to an attorney to see, okay, what what's controlling here? What's happening? Right. So we've done a lot of writing and speaking and, and whatnot to, to our community about, you know, you, you must um, you know, set up your trust and estates and your living wills and get all that stuff set up Very in smart. part, in part so that family members who may not necessarily agree with your relationship can't try to um, undermine uh, what's been left to the surviving spouse. But it sounds like we need to also start advocating for our community, whether prior to marriage or after marriage, to set up a marriage agreement so that both parties are protected throughout the the life of the marriage, however that extends beyond that. I would agree. Absolutely. So let me ask another question here. So if my spouse and I have a premarital agreement, can the premarital agreement be changed or would it would it be replaced by a marital agreement if after marriage we we decide we want to make some changes so john decides that he wants to uh, take over all of my property <laughs> <laughs> so it, as things progress throughout the marriage is this kind of a it can be a living document that changes could be made yes absolutely oh, interesting so long as the you know each time the appropriate in my opinion, each time the appropriate provisions in order to make that document enforceable are met. Okay. And does a um, <laughs> just because so often in our community people have been together for a long time and intend to get married, um, mm-hmm. I think that this is also becoming more much more common in uh, in the straight community as well. People decide that they're going to get married, but they may have a very long engagement. Is a premarital agreement kind of it is in effect as soon as it's signed and that works e- even though the parties have not gotten married the premarital agreement is effective when it's signed and then the parties get married okay gotcha but okay. a marital agreement is effective upon signing okay makes sense oh, okay that makes sense so can we talk a little bit about what kind of provisions would be included in the marital agreement what uh assets or i guess caveats would be included in the marital agreement, like some traditional sure. ones? Absolutely. Absolutely. I will tell you that, you know, certainly there's things that can't be included as well, such as, you know, well, actually, let's back up to what, you know, parties include. We typically include what to do with our property, right? What to do with the 401k or a um, this IRA or this house or, you know, what kind of, kind of character does it take? What and will that remain separate property or marital property upon um, the end of the relationship? And because, as I mentioned before, 
any property acquired during the marriage is basically generally considered marital property unless you fall into those few exceptions that I mentioned. So you want to make sure that you are dictating that, yes, this this property will remain, you know, basically how you want it. It'll go here. It'll go there. A person can include support provisions, for instance, with regard to maintenance, which is the same thing as alimony in other states. Here in Colorado, we call it maintenance. So you can kind of provide for a person that says, okay, well, if our marriage lasts this long and if it ends, then, you know, maintenance will be at this amount. Or, you know, if it reaches to this term, it'll be this amount or what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also provide for a provision with regard of, as I mentioned, with regard to to property, you can kind of dictate what you do with businesses, um, you know, so maintain that kind of separate property delineation, if that makes sense. Or you mm-hmm. can certainly can define roles on disability and death. Um, you can also basically, like I said before, incorporate a provision regarding attorney's fees. What you cannot do <laughs> is certainly say, well, I am going to, you know, this person will anything regarding children, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can't necessarily say that, you know, this person will go here and or this is what parenting time will be because the court always has the authority and the jurisdiction so long as certain requirements are met and the child has been here in Colorado for 183 days or 182 rather, that the court can enter orders regarding the best interest of the child at any time. And so you you can't say like, this is what it's going to be and try to kind of speculate years down the road. Um, you can't talk about what child support is going to be down the road. You can't restrict or limit remedies for domestic violence. Um, you know, as my, co- my good friend and colleague, Carrie Eckstein here at my firm, she says that whole Fifty Shades of Grey contract doesn't hold up in Colorado. <laughs> so, um, so it's just important, you know, and also you can't include provisions here in Colorado that void against public policy. So we want to make sure that, you know, it's not like free for all, mm-hmm. but there are certain things that you can do and there are certain things that you cannot do. Sure. So I, this is this is great because I think not only are we non-traditional in terms of the fact that we're same-sex couples, but there are many of us who bring, like David said, whole histories with us when we enter into marriage. So we've got our own 401k accounts, our own IRA accounts. Many of us have our own homes and investment properties, um, all sorts of assets that we're that we're bringing to the table. And I'm thinking of a couple that communicates with us regularly. He is a business owner, multimillionaire. He's in his 50s. Um, and his partner is in his 20s, just getting started in his career and doesn't have as many assets as the older spouse or partner. So this is where you can kind of delineate who owns what and what, how it's separated should the, the marriage end in divorce. Right. And it okay. provides those protections. And I think a lot of a lot of people in our community reach out to us saying, well, we're not exactly on the same page. How do we how do I protect myself? But it also leads me to the question you, you mentioned several times um marital assets. And this is an interesting concept because I only recently found out that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that investment appreciation itself is considered a marital asset. Is that right? You are absolutely right. So if you have property that is considered separate property, for instance, a home that you have and it's only in your name and there's no mortgage, it's purchased outright and 
you have this home and it's worth $200,000 at the time of your marriage, but at the time of divorce, it's worth $500,000. The court's going to consider that increase in value to that separate property. Even though the court can't say, I'm going to split that home in half and order you to sell it or et cetera, because it still remain that separate property component, we'll call it. Mm -hmm. The still the increase in value to that property is considered marital property. So in that explanation, that example, that $300,000 would be considered a marital asset. Gotcha. But the the marital agreement, or, or maybe could the marital agreement say that the property and any appreciation through the term of our marriage still remains mine? Absolutely. Okay. That's interesting. I never, I never thought of that. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that if that's the case, you definitely want to make some clear definitions because you may have a significant amount of investments uh, prior to getting Including married. Including a business, you know, if you if you if you're just starting a you know a, a cupcake stand on the corner street and you get entered into a marriage and all of a sudden your cupcake stand becomes you know you know and the stores all across the country, <laughs> your partner can get that appreciation in that in that business value, right? That's right. Interesting knowledge. That's bottom. right. As well as, and, you know, we often see this problem um, as well in divorces or legal separations where a person has a home from before the marriage or any type of personal property or business, whatnot, but then adds the other person's name to it. And the court says that no longer has maintained its kind of separate property characteristic. You've gifted that to the marriage. And so, it's just important to know these things before you enter into a marriage. And, you know, because one act can certainly change. And <laughs> I've had situations where a person added a person's name to the property and then throughout the marriage had removed the person's name and still attempted to maintain, argue that that maintained its separate property status. And the court said, no way. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Things Which, we do when we're in love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if appreciation in assets is considered can be considered marital property, what about the depreciation in debt? <laughs> well, yeah, that was my next question. So we do get a lot of questions about how does debt affect our marriage. So to David's point, what would happen if I acquire without his knowledge, you know, ten thousand dollars worth of debt on my credit card? Is that also his? Well, it de- I mean, it certainly would depend upon was that marital, you know, was it acquired during the marriage and was it for kind of marital purposes? Um, the court and even if the court said that it maintained its separate property status, we'll call it, it could still be considered an economic circumstance of the division of property per se. So it, you need to be very clear on these in these marital agreements. What is the definition of marital property and and non marital property are? I guess that's correct. So and that's why you pay a lawyer right, <laughs> billable exactly. hours to help you out with that. <laughs> so if, if John is off uh, taking vacations to Mexico without me and racking up this ten thousand dollars debt, it may not be considered marital property. Um, but I would argue I can't it's adding value to our marriage because I'm making you happier. <laughs> <laughs> now she's getting well, certainly- in too deep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, absent an, a marital agreement or a premarital agreement to define those things, I mean, if a person is acquiring debt throughout the pendency of a marriage, that debt is 
basically going to be divided equitably. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the court's going to look at what the nature of that debt is potentially, you know, uh, but there is a strong argument that if it were acquired during the marriage, then that's marital property. Hmm. So what about subject to division? (laughs) Subject to division. Being liable for it. Okay. So So what happens to debt, credit card debt, and or student loan debt brought to a marriage? Does that stay separate or do they kind of commingle once you say I do? No, you certainly can argue that that's separate. Um, Student loans are an interesting thing here in Colorado. Um, There's case law that suggests that the court will look to, um, the court can't divide the degree on the wall, right? Um, (laughs) So... But the court can look to what was acquired during that person's, you know, pursuit of education. And, you know, certainly, I mean, I've seen situations where the court will look to the student loans and they say, well, that person, that's student loans, that should be all that person's because they are walking away with this degree, right? But if some of those loans were taken to pay a mortgage, put food on the table, to put gas in the cars, to get to work, what have you, then that could be considered a marital debt. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Um, yes. And that kind of loan is often used to make ends meet. Right. That's school. right. Right. Interesting. Huh. So again, it's better to have that premarital or marital agreement that defines yes or no, so to speak. Could it also be argued though that even if I went to school and graduated and acquired all of my student loan debt on my own, but because I got the career that I did because of my degree and David benefited from that, that that kind of, he he benefited from the amassing of that debt. That's a very important argument and certainly could be considered in that equitable assessment. Mm-hmm. of a, any division, in my opinion. Gotcha. So let's move on from debt, if we can, to children. We do have a lot of couples uh, who get together and bring children from previous relationships into the new family. How do marital agreements, if at all, affect the children? Well, certainly you can provide for them. You can basically dictate you know, what that this is going to remain separate property for them. And you can, number one, protect the children by saying that, you know, this is going to remain separate and um, kind of uh, for estate planning purposes, if that makes sense. Um, And so in my opinion, I think it's most important in that fashion. And, you know, certainly you can go to an estate planning attorney and uh, to go to them and say, you know, like either jointly or separately and say, you know, you can create trusts and say, yes, this will go to the surviving spouse and but this will go to the children from before the marriage and just make sure that, you know, it's all very complicated and very um, kind of out of my wheelhouse as far as the estate planning perspective. But you certainly can provide for them. Like I said, you can't say who's going to be Who's going to exercise parenting time? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that for any minor kiddos? Um, And you also can't basically dictate child support either, but you can certainly protect them or protect, say, you know, a family interest or a family, any prior family wealth before the marriage so that they're not left disinherited or or not, not necessarily disinherited, but, you know, so they're not left kind of out in the cold. 
Right. Sure. And I think as we mentioned at the beginning, this is all designed for the protection of the interested parties. So when you're thinking about the children, you're going to want to want to be thinking about how do you protect them right. from mm-hmm. from any decisions that you're going to be making going forward as a part of your marriage. So That's you know, it let's let's say you were in a relationship prior and you have a child or children, you may want to set up certain portions of the property that you have prior designated for those children so that in the event something happens to you or you do get divorced, that property can't be touched because it's being set aside for the children. Right. That's correct. So you would want to state in the marital agreement that my children will inherit this house from prior to this relationship or this this house will stay out of this relationship property. property, right? And then you would then have the set up a will so that your child could inherit that property after you pass away. That's correct. If or other estate planning tools, trusts, etc. So you can make sure that, yes, it's a it's kind of a, a combined effort of maintaining that separate property and then further dictating what happens down the line with a trust and estates attorney. Okay. So you you would want to include a family law attorney to help you out with the marital agreement, whether it's pre or post marital agreement. And then you'd also want to work with a trust and estates attorney to help you out with your planning for after you pass away. Absolutely. Okay. Would it, in some of the reading, it seemed to me that it suggests that David and I are, are in a relationship and we want to set up a marital agreement. It sounds like it's in our best interest to find two different attorneys to advocate on our behalves. That's right, because it has to be independent legal counsel if you are if you are drafting a marital agreement and entering into a marital agreement, there's a few things that have to be met in order to be not challenged, so to speak, down the road. Um, one of that is having the access to independent legal counsel and um, basically making sure that each person has their own independent counsel. And we tend to work with other attorneys all the time. And um, it's quite nice to be able to work with someone um, that you have a familiarity with and that kind of works similarly than you do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, also, you have to have that there's that you both consent into entering into this agreement and that there's no duress. You know, certainly, basically, a lot of parties say, well, you know, for premarital agreements, you know, one of our main questions is that, you know, well, they told me that I, they wouldn't marry me if I didn't sign this premarital agreement. And sometimes parties attempt to argue that that's duress, but the court says, you know what, you have the right to get married or not get married. And right. so they don't believe that that rises to the level, so to speak, of duress, that alone. Oh, interesting. And I guess if you're only working with one attorney, you may be concerned that that one person may be manipulating or working with that attorney to the disadvantage of the other party. So I understand right. and that makes sense why you have to have or want to have two attorneys. That's right. That's right. And as well, you also have to have adequate financial disclosure. So you can't necessarily just enter into one of these agreements and say, you know what, what's yours is yours. What's mine is mine. <laughs> let's sign this puppy and let's move on our way. You have to make sure that the person has adequate financial disclosure, including, you know, accounts, property, and even the disclosure of income nowadays. Um, That was an added provision through our new law. And that's 
you know, basically exchanging information regarding um, summaries of bank accounts or retirement accounts or statements or income tax disclosure, um, basically explaining that this is what I have and this is what we're defining in this agreement. And so the court wants to make sure that, you know, it's not just you know, someone's not being lied to. Right. <laughs> so, right. so you're so, saying then the 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 secret twenty thousand dollar account that David doesn't know about. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that because he doesn't know about it, he can't have access to it. Essentially, the court would say that is also his if it was acquired throughout the marriage. But it would need to be defined. Right. That's right. You so, know, pay stub, <laughs> income tax return. You know, real estate documents, personal debt statements, balance and payment terms, you know, certainly any and all credit cards, uh, retirement plans, estate plans, investments, bank accounts, insurance, businesses, you name it. So Disclose it. So I'm going to, Jennifer, I'm going to make you the scapegoat <laughs> or your, your, your industry, family law attorneys. I'm going to make you the scapegoat here. But it sounds to me like if you are potentially having, I don't want to say necessarily concerns, but you want to have an open and honest discussion about money with the person you want to get married to. And right. you've had a hard time breaking into that conversation, this may be a way to kind of open up the books and say, we're going to get completely honest with each other so that we do this right. That's exactly right. Absolutely. And I mean, you wouldn't believe the number of bitter divorces and very trying times that we've had to, you know, certainly assist with, um, you know, because the parties hadn't had that conversation of this is what where we're at and it's financially draining and mm -hmm. not to mention emotionally and mentally and <laughs> physically also right. draining. So to me, it's a way to be able to attempt to minimize that because, you know, if you're able to, and I think you're right in that that is a good way to, like I mentioned before, it's not only attempting to protect say the for lack of a better term wealthier spouse entering into the marriage it's you can attempt to protect both parties right yeah so definitely as you're listening to this think about you know, we, we've told you this before it's okay to use the deaf guys as a um <laughs> as yes yeah, scapegoat or to point the finger at and say i listened to this podcast and they told me to do this well now, now we have jenny now we have jenny <laughs> <laughs> saying this uh, we have we have an attorney telling you to do the exact same thing so when you're considering your marriage uh, and you're getting ready for this or even if you've already done it and you are wanting to maybe expose uh, some more honesty in your relationship, this is a perfect opportunity to do that. To say, I think it's a good idea for us to go talk to someone like Jennifer, someone who is a, a, a family law attorney and say, help us understand the value or the benefit of having a prenuptial agreement or a, a marital agreement. And that way you can, you can maybe 
tell the person you're with that you have an extra $20,000 savings account or <laughs> you have an extra $20,000 like in debt that they didn't know about, <laughs> yeah. but that it's, that this is, this is the way to start that or to get into that conversation. Exactly. That's, that's great. So I've got a few questions that David and I received from some of the members in our Queer Money Facebook group. It's a private Facebook group that we have, uh, mostly LGBT people uh, to help them progress in their financial lives. And um, so I'm going to throw those to you, Jenny. I think some of these we might have already covered at least to some extent, but I want to make sure we, we answer all the questions if possible, please. Sure. So Teresa asks, how do you organize your affairs to protect both your children from a previous relationship and your new partner? So that's interesting. We, we've talked about children and, and the partner, but how do you, what's the legal strategy to make sure both parties are have adequate protections? You know, I would strongly, strongly recommend that you go to, I mean, even if you just have, you know, one meeting with an attorney, a family law attorney, an estate planning attorney, and have those two people have, you know, basically be on a conference call. Let's be able to protect you. And, you know, it certainly depends upon your situation. And so, you know, seek guidance from those individuals to be able to adequately plan and properly prepare you know, your personal plan of, you know, protecting yourself, protecting for your kiddos and, you know, making sure that those two things don't um, contradict each other. Because if you're seeking guidance from one person and another person, you know, there's a possibility that something could get lost in translation whenever you're basically bouncing between one office to the other. And so it's better that you be able to have this kind of joint effort to be able to to sit down and specifically plan for your independent needs. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's a good, great recommendation. Get everybody on the same call in the same room or whatever so that um, you're not interpreting from one attorney to the next because, I mean, that's that's hard. You, they go to law school for several years to be able to talk their language. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or, or trying and that's to... right. And I mean, we do this on a daily basis. We'll have, you know, we kind of, I mean, it's, as strange as it sounds, you know, we only we almost have this kind of very interesting network. We'll pull in guidance from, you know, say your real estate agent, your mortgage broker, your financial planner, your, um, you know, as mentioned, your estate planner to make sure that everything is not contradictory and and basically not being able to undo anything. And so it is It is important that everyone is on the same page to make sure that your T's are crossed and I's are dotted. Right. And I think that, in the, I think one of the things that Teresa is speaking to here is you may have a relationship with an ex-spouse and they may have an understanding of how things are supposed to go down. And then you have a relationship with your new partner uh, spouse, and they may have a certain understanding of how things go down because the conversations are happening separately and maybe years apart. So it's important to make sure you get everybody together to, to as you mentioned, cross the T's and dot the I's. That's right. So Adam asks about debt brought into the marriage by one or both parties, debt incurred during the marriage and spousal liability or lack thereof. Is that, is that a question? Um, I guess I guess he's basically saying, and we, we addressed this earlier, how, how does debt affect a marriage legally, both that brought into the marriage and that acquired during the marriage? And, sound, and I think you pretty much summed that up already. 
Certainly. Well, as mentioned, um, you know, property acquired before the marriage, you can certainly argue that that's separate property. And, you know, so long as it's not, I mean, if you, what we do is we tend to have, you know, and that's for assets and liabilities. And so we'll look to the value of that property at the date of divorce, I mean, date of marriage and the date of divorce. So, um, Mm -hmm. meaning, and it, with debt, it's a bit different because you want to look at, well, you know, has it been, you know, has the nature of that debt been to acquire, you know, gone towards marital purposes, if that makes sense. Right. So, but the debt during the marriage, if per, if a person goes and <laughs> arguably goes and buys a boat and has a significant amount of debt associated with that boat and the other person didn't agree to it during the marriage and there's nothing that, you know, there's no agreements that kind of dictate you know, absent any agreement to the contrary, that's going to be considered a marital asset and debt. And the court's going to have to divide it equitably. And in in Colorado, we in family law, where it's Colorado is a very under the Uniform Dissolution of Marriage Act, it's all very subjective. So equitably can be one thing to one particular person and it complete can be a completely different thing down the hallway with a different judge in their courtroom. Mm. So, you know, and equitably does not necessarily mean 50-50. It could be 60-40 split. It could be a 70-30 split. But the court would have to be interfindings of fact that supports that equitable division, if that makes sense. It does. And it sounds, I think it's important to remember too, that what we're saying here might not apply to everybody across the board in every other state. The state laws are different, right? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, so this is a this this. If you're not in, living in Colorado, this is more of a directional conversation for you. I mean, if you have any specific questions, certainly talk to an attorney um, licensed in in the state in which you reside. Yeah, and absolutely. I want to hear this story about the person who bought the boat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she's got some good stories. Yeah, I know that, she does. But that's when we don't record. Right. <laughs> we're not recording, and when we have some wine. Yeah. <laughs> And no names are disclosed, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, um, so Matthew asks, he didn't so much ask a question, but he shared a, a story. He has friends of his who um, got married. It's a straight couple, actually. He got married and they decided to invest all of their available, their, their investable money into his traditional IRA account. They they never got married. They So no, they along the way, they were putting money oh, into... Yeah, yeah. His IRA, both she and he were both putting money into his IRA. And then they decided to not get married. And she tried to claim that some of that money as hers because she was making contributions or giving him contributions to that IRA. And she had no grounds. She had no grounds. Right. Right. So I guess the question is, why is that the case? <laughs> and how stupid was she? I hate to say it like that, but <laughs> that's... no, that's not nice. <laughs> yeah. So no, why, I why would, um, why would well, that be I the mean, case? Yeah. Sometimes it, you know, we sometimes have to tackle this problem quite a bit where the fair thing, the equitable thing seems kind of right there in front of us. Right. Um, but sometimes the law just doesn't support that, you know, and it's, it, it can be quite frustrating. So that's why, again, I always say, get that premarital agreement, get that marital agreement. So you can at least have some sort of that, maintain some of that control 
over, you know, certain things where there is this uncertainty in the future that could not go in your favor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a lesson. And in a situation like this, because they never got married, there wouldn't be any recourse that she has, right? Because even if they had a premarital agreement, it wouldn't have impacted it. The fact that she was giving him money to put into his IRA. That's right. I mean, that's the way that I would see it. In my opinion, it certainly seems that way. I mean, I certainly could be wrong, but yeah, I mean, in my world, you know, there's no, there's no action to be filed. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no divorce. There's no, you're not enforcing any agreements because there's no divorce to be had. Right. Um, But certainly I'm not certain if there's anything a civil lawyer could certainly do. I'm not, but it sounds like that there was no claim. Right. Yeah. It's a, a very sad situation because... It's a gift, I suppose. Yeah. It, it's a very sad situation because you th- you have all of the best intentions when you're, when you're wanting to get married to someone. And it really is, speaks to the importance of having an uh, honest financial conversation. And well, that, and like, talking with professionals who, who, who can guide you through that. Exactly. Um, attorneys right. and financial planners. Uh, and, I'm sure a, a financial planner or an attorney would have told her her pretty quickly that stop, stop. You need to be thinking <laughs> you, until you get married. You definitely need to be thinking for thinking of yourself and together, but think of yourself, uh, and the impact your actions are going to have on yourself, on your own uh, financial well-being. So the last question from our career money group is from Mike. And I think this is a good question because we've talked about hiring an attorney and hiring multiple attorneys and hiring financial planners. And many in our community can't necessarily afford all that. So where can someone go to get reasonably priced uh, legal counsel, such as marital agreements, living wills, uh, medical powers of attorneys? Is there any resource for those who aren't as um, flush with cash? Absolutely. Um, there are several resources. Um, I mean, I'll be even frank. My firm, we have a what's called a, a self-represented resource center where you certainly can meet with an attorney and walk through, you know, certain filings, paperwork, what have you, and they can provide you with information, but they're not representing you in court, if that makes sense. So, you know, I would strongly recommend speaking with, you know, or even having just an attorney you know, meeting with attorneys just to have, you know, not necessarily the full representation, but so you can have some of that guidance to be able to, I mean, there's several times where I've had go to a seminar. We, there's plenty of seminars in the Denver metro area that the, you know, the Denver Bar Association puts on one. Uh, Metro Volunteer Lawyers is a great organization if you don't necessarily, you know, you there has to be a certain income threshold in order to be able to qualify for Metro Volunteer Lawyers. But it's just important to gather as as much information as possible. And with our self-represented resource center, you know, certainly having that guidance and that information from attorney can be so helpful. And I would even strongly propose someone to go to our website. We incorporate articles on our website quite often and um, just giving information as to, you know, what the court may or may not do or how Colorado treats this, that, or the other. And um, so, you know, I'd strongly recommend those, those resources. Right. And I'll say every attorney that we know personally and professionally 
is constantly speaking at workshops and seminars and putting on presentations. And I'm sure a lot of that is within their own industry, but they're also working with uh, the public in many different occasions. So if you can't necessarily afford an attorney for a one-on-one relationship, as Jenny recommends, look, see where they're speaking and what workshops are going on that are cheaper or in some cases free and at least start gathering information there. Absolutely. And that self-represented resource, is that something that's on your website as well? It is, yes. Okay. And that's uh, your website is harrisfamilylaw.com, correct? That's correct. All right. And it's at the very top. It says um, Self-Represented Resource Center. You can go there. All right. Can't get any higher than that. Yeah. Well, so you just stole my last question. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) My last question to Jenny was going to be, (laughs) where can our listeners find out more about you and Harris Law Firm, please? (laughs) That's right. That's right. We're all there. Um, and my certainly my bio is there. So you can certainly find me. Um, we have, Strangely enough, we have several Jennies in our firm, but I'm the only Jenny attorney. So it's easy to find me. No problem. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. And then you're also on the firm is also on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn, and Google Plus. And I'm sure you're, you have a personal profile on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm assuming. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Well, thank you very much. We this has been a, a I don't know how taxing it was on you. It was it was a great conversation for us. It was um, we got a lot of free information here. <laughs> Definitely. Good. I'm glad I can help. You know, I um, I certainly appreciate you all, and I hope this kind of just general information has been helpful. Yeah, but I've definitely. certainly enjoyed myself. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a journey for our community to move towards uh, marriage equality and now understanding all of the pieces that fit into that. It's important for us to be catching up as quickly as we can. So thank you. Thank you. Wow. That is what we call an information-dense show. Thank you, Jennifer Ray from Harris Law Firm here in Denver, Colorado, for sharing your wisdom and educating us and our community. We're often reminded in today's show and in many of the discussions that we have with many of our guests that simple conversations, talking about things that may traditionally be uncomfortable for us, can really have a profound and positive impact on our lives. Many of us don't like talking about money, but if we don't talk about money with ourselves and with our partners and spouses, we can end up in financially precarious positions. The same is true, apparently, for our marriages. And what Jennifer shared today is great. So please, Talk with your partner or spouse leading into a marriage, or if you're already married, after your marriage, about what exactly you want your life to look like. How should your marriage look like? What do you want your finances to be? Have those discussions with yourselves and with professionals so that you can create the life that you want. As always, we thank you for your time today. We thank you for listening to Queer Money. Please help us spread the message of Queer Money by liking, commenting, and sharing Queer Money on iTunes so that we can get this in the hands of more people and so we can help more people live fabulously and not fabulously broke. Until next time. Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. <laughs> <laughs> it would help me if I had a personal chef who made all me all my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead, I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> the other end, I like the butts. So. <laughs> yeah. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. 
Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.